0: Hey curious people, this is Jonathan Van Ness and welcome back to Getting Curious. Everyone, I love you so much. I miss you so much. It is the week before Christmas and true story, as you listen to this, I'm laying in my bed, um, recovering from a gorgeous little procedure. So basically I'm just resting and I'm healing. Um, And while I'm resting and healing, our country is um, not. And so, you know, 2023 was a really intense year. I don't know if it was an intense year for you. It was an intense year for me, but it was an especially... A crazy year for the Supreme Court. In 2023, the Supreme Court overturned affirmative action. They ruled that the Biden administration's plan to wipe out $400 billion in student uh, debt was unconstitutional. Fuckers. They also ruled that a web designer in Colorado has a First Amendment right to refuse to create sites for same-sex weddings despite a state law that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation. Looking ahead to 2024, we also might hear a decision on the constitutionality of Prestone, the abortion pill, which the Supreme Court literally just decided last week to take up um, to make a ruling on in 2024. So the Supreme Court has really been on one, but this wave of destruction all started in the summer of 2022, which actually started long before that, with the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Also, this episode was from that like interesting moment in time when the when the Dobbs decision had been leaked and they never figured out who leaked it and then before it actually came out. So this is a really interesting moment in time that actually predicted some more things that ended up happening. So that's another reason why we wanted to release that episode this week. Um, we, it's a it's an episode about history. It's an episode about contemporary American politics. It's giving you like 1600s to now. So get into it. I love it. This episode is incredible. Without me, you know, I know I told you that like 80 times. But I love you, Curious People. Enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Getting Curious, Jacqueline. How are you?
1: Oh, oh well thank you for having me I'm doing okay how are you really good thank you
0: it's not that you asked and nor did anyone but I will just say I did a rearing good like an like a way above average eighth grade biography of Jacqueline Bouvet Kennedy Onassis uh yes. just so everyone knows I did do that I don't know if I still have it anywhere but it was a really good report on
1: on her I will say that that's who I am named after so
0: oh and when her husband was president in the 60s, uh, abortion rights were not guaranteed. Um, And one thing that I think that I, mean, I actually just learned this, one of my very best friends, her mom was telling me that she used to work at the Quincy police station back in the 60s as like a secretary. And... She told me that monthly women would die from at-home self-induced abortions. And this was a very common thing to see in police departments at the time. Women slumped over toilets and bathtubs. I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not being like, like that was the reality of what would happen multiple times a month pre-Roe v. Wade. Um, and that's something I just did not understand. And I think so often on getting curious um, or just in my life, I'm commonly shocked by, uh, truths of our history that I didn't learn about until way too late. And I think so often it's like under the guise of like not wanting to scare children, which is like why we don't talk about it. Um, but that's really your, your scholarship is incredible. And also nursing Cleo, if you're someone who doesn't read blogs and you're not like all up in the blog world, you should really be following this one and reading about it. Can you just start off by kind of telling us a little bit about what your work is in and, uh, and what it really means when, when we say in that intro that you have particular interest in how race, gender and politics shape the medical field and access to healthcare.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a, that's a really important question. Um, and one of the reasons why I started Nursing Clio in 2012, it was an election year and there were politicians and pundits on CNN and, and talking about things like legitimate rape right? Or talking about things like holding an aspirin between your legs, you know, so that you don't get pregnant. I have a whole, you know, uh, sort of friend group of others who are historians of gender and medicine and race and sexuality. Um, and we would talk about how all of these people were sort of missing the historical context. Um, all of these political discussions that we have have histories and nobody talks about those. And so, you know, I really do feel like the history of gender medicine, especially how it intersects with race and sexuality, um, is a discourse, as you mentioned, that's really missing from the news media and all of that. And, and you're right, when we don't do that history, when we don't regularly interrogate that history, we forget about things like how brutal back alley abortions were or self-induced abortions. And it is really hard to talk about, but as we see with, with Roe, you know, um, probably, you know, being overturned any moment now um, it's really important to have these conversations, even if they're difficult.
0: One thing that um, really pisses me off. I was just reading it this morning on Buzzfeed was those stories about like What's too much for a bachelorette party? And like this one girl who paid for the hotel realizes that like they're all supposed to pay for the bride's room. And so, and you know, she didn't know. And so she was pissed. And so this whole thing was this viral TikTok is like, you know, if people thought she should be mad or not, whatever. And in this article, they talk about how expensive the price of the plane ticket is, the hotel, the cab, the food. So if you don't have like, you know, $4,000, $3,000 of disposable income, which is how much you're going to pay for the flight and the hotels and stuff, you might not be able to get that healthcare if you're, say, in Tennessee or uh, Louisiana or um, Oklahoma that has now passed these incredibly restrictive abortion bans. So, like, we are going to see women again dying of at-home, back-alley abortions, and that is 100%... Not to be hyperbolic again, but if you voted for Donald Trump in 2016, that is 100% on you. And now we have to fix it. Now we all have to come together and figure out how to fix what is sure to be a complete fucked up mess. But we can't fix what's going on now if we don't understand where we came from. So we are recording this amidst the potential rollback of Roe v. Wade, although I think we can... We need to assume that it is rolled back. We shouldn't waste any time. By the time this episode's out, the Supreme Court's decision will likely be final. So, Jesus Christ, it's chilling. Uh, what stands out to you as a historian about this moment?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think I will answer this question in two ways. I, I, I'd actually like to answer this question as a historian who identifies as a woman, right? I was born in 1973, And as I sort of come up to my 50th birthday, I realized that I've had my entire life, during my entire reproductive life, abortion has been legal for me if I needed it. And to me, the fact that I also have daughters and that they won't grow up with the same human right that I had is especially chilling. Um Now, as a historian, um, <laughs> I would say that one of the things that I think really uh, that I'm struck with is Alito's misunderstanding and misuse of history um, in his sort of leaked opinion. Right. He, you know, makes these claims that. You know, abortion is not rooted in U.S. history, and then he points to one guy who lived in England in in the 1700s um, to make the case that everyone was against abortion and that abortion was wrong, right? And and of course, the same guy, Matthew Hale, was you know like burned people at the stake for witchcraft, not a great guy. That's not how we do history, right? We don't cherry pick our arguments.
0: So let's not skip over that really quick. So I do just want to like really ride this home. So Alito is appointed by George H.W. Bush, the president from 2000 to 2008. The guy who like invades Iraq. So then Alito is now in the Supreme Court and in this leaked opinion he literally points out this judge, this British judge uh, or legislator guy who lived in the 1700s who literally, according to the law at the time, burned women at the Stake for being witches. Yes. That is the person that he quotes in this leaked Supreme Court of the United States in 2022. Like, that is something that we need to let that come into it. You know, people say a lot of things, but we're, we really have a justice of the United States Supreme Court citing a legislator from the 1700s who burned women at the fucking stake. And when we think about what else was codified into law in the 1700s, there was a lot that was codified into the law in the 1700s that we know is in like subhuman, not, and not of a moral compass that like anyone would ascribe to today. So he quotes that guy and then he says, no, abortions weren't deeply rooted in U.S. history. And to that, we're saying that is not true because they were trying to get abortions in the 1700s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if we, if we, if we want to understand the history of abortion, we actually have to kind of step back and understand the history of women's health in general. Um, and you know, prior to the 19th century, women largely were the ones who were in control of their reproductive health and their reproductive lives. They're the ones that had sort of the wisdom on things like how to space out your births how to uh, use birth control, um, and and how to do an abortion if needed. Abortion was a regular part of women's health care. Um, and so for Alito to sort of allude to one guy in in England and cherry pick his history, it, it's just not accurate. We also have to sort of understand the ways in which we conceptualize health too. Um, health in up to the mid 19th century was sort of viewed as um, a balance, right? Your balance of humors. If you've heard of humoral medicine Um, and if you were sick, it meant that one of your humors was out of balance, right? And so you would have to work to get that humor back into balance, which is where you may have heard of things like bloodletting and things like that. Mm. Um, Yeah. And so women, when they didn't get their period, They didn't necessarily think that it was pregnancy. Um, They maybe looked at it as a blockage or an imbalance. So they would do things like uh, taking uh, different kinds of herbs like Pennyroyal or Tansy or Savin. Uh, We have all of these domestic medicine books that sort of uh, give instructions on how to, um, uh, what they would call, bring down the flowers um, and so pregnancy actually wasn't even really considered a thing until about 15 to 24 weeks of pregnancy. And that's when you would have the moment of quickening. And quickening is basically like when you feel the baby kick, right? When you can feel the baby moving around inside of you. Um, that would be considered when the soul entered the, the fetus. And that would be when you were considered pregnant. And so any. Sort of abortion that you would induce yourself or have a midwife induce prior to about 24 weeks of pregnancy was not an issue at all. And it was actually practiced quite regularly.
0: So historically, who like would like seek out an abortion?
1: I mean, anybody who could get pregnant. Um, it was very, very common. And
0: how do we see that in like the historical texts? Like, would they be like, "Ye, Lady Sally would go to the midwife to take the pennywort until, like, the flowers raineth,
1: or something." That, exactly that. No. So we actually have a lot of evidence of this, and um, we have, as I mentioned, we have a lot of these um, uh, domestic medicine handbooks. Um, that were produced and they would have recipes that would be for, um, you know, like, as I said, like bringing down the flowers or to start your menzies, as, as that they would call it. Um, we also, I mean, I think one of the things that was making the news lately was that even Benjamin Franklin had an abortive recipe in one of his books. Um, so we have a lot of those. Um, we also have one of the most famous um, documentations that we have is a, is a, is a, a diary of a midwife, uh, named Martha Ballard, who sort of kept a diary every day of her practices. And then, you know, if things went wrong, um, you would maybe find these things in court cases or in newspapers, especially later on when abortion starts to become criminalized.
0: So historically, it was always the kind of midwives who would perform them?
1: Yes. I mean, prior to about the mid-19th century. And then later, uh, you know, physicians began to perform them more.
0: So prior to like the 1850s, when you like first, you know, diddle up until when you feel the baby kick, that's not controversial. The midwife gives you a little potion of like some hogwort, pennyweed, Mm -hmm. polyjuice potion. And then did they work? Did like abortion (laughs) tonics work?
1: I mean, we I think there's contradicting evidence about whether these items worked as abortifacients or not. But I will, I do wanna say that, you know, some of these substances are really dangerous. If taken in the, you know, so if anybody listening to this, right? Um, if taken in the wrong quantities um, can be really dangerous. So I don't want to sort of romanticize it and say that, you know, women had abortions all the time and they were fine and they didn't, you know, get sick or die um, because that did happen. But it was not seen as controversial um, and I would say that we get like the first law against abortion in Connecticut around the 1820s. Um, and that is mainly um, enacted to protect women from abortion through poison, right? So if they were, they took too much of something, um, but it wasn't to protect the fetus, it was to protect the mother. A lot of these abortion um, laws that we first get in the 19th century have absolutely nothing to do with the fetus. They have to do with protecting the, the woman from like uh, inscrupulous abortion doctors or getting hurt.
0: Is that what was really like at risk to the people seeking abortions and the providers at the time was like causing someone to become severely ill or die?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have this really wonderful source about a woman in who got pregnant out of wedlock and then her, her boyfriend at the time, and this is sort of during the Puritan era, uh, wanted her to get an abortion. Her name was Sarah Grosner. And, um, they first tried, um, to do, um, herbs and that didn't work. And then they found a doctor to do it. And then she later died, um, because, you know, medical care at the time for anyone was pretty dangerous. Um, and um, the the doctor was put on trial, not because of killing a fetus, but because the woman died. Um, and so that was generally what people objected to.
0: Got it. Wow. Yes. So the right to abortion is like one thing, uh, but then there's also like forced contraception, uh, which has another long history in the U.S. Um, I don't know my... My automatic shade keeps, like, lifting and lowering. Like, so if you hear, like, a weird, like, gur I don't know what that is. I thought I was sitting on the remote, but I'm not. I'm like, oh, it's, like, literally over there. It's really, it's like a ghost or something. There's, like, a pro-life ghost who's, like, not into this. My husband loves him some ritual. His little tum-tum can get off. His little microbiome, it says, help me. Enter Ritual. They created a three-in-one supplement, including clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gash, and diarrhea. I really like Ritual because they prioritize sustainably sourced and traceable ingredients. I love to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning along with my hot tea or coffee because I feel like it helps me start the day off right. I also love that Ritual has industry-leading sustainability standards. Ritual uses scientific tools to select lower carbon packaging, prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 20% off your first month for a limited time at Ritual.com slash Curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's Ritual.com slash Curious for 20% off. Honey, I love a luxurious moment, but I also love luxury that like doesn't cost quite so much. Then I discovered Quince and it was a total game changer. They have so many different items to choose from. They have washable silk tops and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with Top Factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Thanks, Quince. And... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury, honey. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365 day returns. quince.com slash curious. But what is the history of forced birth control and sterilization in the U.S.? Because it's like, it happens.
1: Yes. This is a super important history that I actually think, and I think other scholars uh, in, in this area would agree, you can't actually look at the history of reproductive rights without also looking at the history of reproductive restrictions, this really began and centers on the sort of the topic of eugenics. How familiar are you with eugenics?
0: Oh, we're pretty familiar with eugenics. So in the TV show, Getting Curious, we did an episode on the history of the gender binary and we learned from a local we are huge fans of over here, um, that actually like the enforcement of the gender binary was born from like the first cousin of Darwin who invented eugenics and was just like this fuck who was saying that like people who like ascribe to like, other gender ideas like were, you know, like not civilized the way that the Europeans are. So they were trying to like spread civilization because it was, you know, quote, like savages and barbarians and stuff who like let women like hunt and like the men wore skirts. And so that wasn't like seen as civilized. So they really started to like vilify and like pathologize like gender and like criminalized gender in a really severe way. So, yeah, eugenics sucks. We we know a little bit about it, but just in case someone's like it's like their first time listening to this podcast and maybe they don't maybe they don't know, um get get it give it to us and then tell us about it.
1: Sure. Yeah, well that was a, a an excellent summary actually. And
0: who is Darwin's cousin? Who is that fucker? Francis Galton. Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck Francis Galton. Krusty dick. We hate him. <laughs> We're going to call him Krusty Dick, but Uh-oh. I'm writing down Krusty Dick <laughs> Francis Dalton. Galton. Fred Galton. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That is. And he that's... had some gall. Is that where that word comes from? The gall it of should. Galton, honey? It's just, it but anyway. So he yes. invented it in like the
1: 1800s, late 1800s. You know, there are a lot of people who were at this time sort of thinking about race science, but Galton is the one who coins the term eugenics, which means well born. Um, and it's this idea that you can manipulate human genes through better breeding. So, I mean, one of the most simple ways to think about it is the ways in which we genetically modify crops. It was thought that we could also do this to humans. And this idea, I can't, I can't overemphasize how many people bought into eugenics. When I'm teaching eugenics to my students, I don't call it a pseudoscience. I call it a science because at the time it was considered legitimate science, really bad science and horrible racist science.
0: But I think even now, like there are, People ascribe to things that they don't even realize are eugenics, yep. but they are like, yes. it's very still common for people to like not believe in interracial marriage, like not believe in all sorts of shit because they're like, you know, they don't realize that it's hardcore racism, but it's fucking hardcore racism that like causes them to like think about things that are literally like in the same house as eugenics that may be like on the front porch. It's like not blatant, but it's like pretty there, you yes. know?
1: Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, um, it, that's a really important point because it's important to understand how we got to these forced sterilizations because a lot of people got into this idea. Um, and so we have two strands of eugenic thought. We have positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics was this idea of, you know, how do we take the very best of the best of the best in our in our eyes, sort of read, you know, Anglo-Saxon white Protestants, how do we get them to breed more, right? Uh, well, we'll pass marriage laws, we'll have these better baby contests, well, everybody will bring their baby to the fair and we'll judge who's the best one. Um, then negative eugenics, on the other hand, was this idea of, okay, well, how do we keep the worst of the worst In their minds, anybody who was not Anglo-Saxon white Protestant, how do we keep them from not breeding? Right. And one of the ways that we do this is through forced sterilization. And in 1927, we get this Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell, which basically decides that it is okay to sterilize people against their will for the common good.
0: And that's in what year?
1: 1927.
0: So in 1927, the Supreme yep. Court rules. So does Buck sue the government? Cause they were sterilized and like didn't want to be. And then the Supreme Court was like, yeah, no, sorry.
1: <sighs> well, actually what happens is there is this girl named Carrie Buck and, um, she is in an institution for being what they called feeble minded. Um, we know now that she had a normal intelligence. Um, you know, we have several interviews with her. Um, there's a historian named Paul Lombardo who's written a lot about this. Um, but she was institutionalized because she had a baby out of wedlock. And I should note that the baby, she became pregnant through a, a, a relative had raped her. But at the time, you know, baby out of wedlock, it means that she's sexually immoral, which means there must be something wrong with her, which means she's feeble-minded. So she was put in an institution in Virginia. Her mother was actually in the same institution. So they were institutionalized together for similar reasons. And then she had a baby because she was pregnant and um, officials deemed her feeble-minded as well. And so what they did was they assumed that, well, here we can prove that we have these three generations of women who are passing down bad genes. This is a perfect test case to bring to the Supreme Court. And so they basically hired Carrie a lawyer, but the lawyer that they hired for her was a eugenicist. In order to get this law passed, um, they wanted the Supreme Court to pass this law so that everybody in all the states could pass these laws. Um, and so, you know, they found uh, that indeed there's this very famous Supreme Court quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Um, and they said, we have to stop this. And they did, and so then after that, many states passed uh, forced sterilization laws, um, and we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were sterilized against their will. So,
0: one thing about history that I learned and thought was interesting was that, like, Mary Todd Lincoln was institutionalized for spending too much money by her eldest son, like after Abraham Lincoln was uh, assassinated, and then the second she got out, she like hightailed it to Paris because she was like, "Fuck these goddamn fuckers, they're going to put me." So, like, women's rights were severely subjugated. Like women were institutionalized for like living life like all the time. So it's another thing that we have to understand about like the feminist movement is that it, up until 1921, up until the suffragette movement, like white women were really fighting for uh equal power and playing field so that their like white husbands, sons, uncles, dads, whoever, couldn't institutionalize them. So when they didn't allow black women and women of color to join, there was like this like impetus and frankly, selfishness, but like at the time they wouldn't have called it that. And that's kind of a duality that like white women were considered property. They were like literally getting fucked over left, right, and center by their male counterparts. And at the same time, in trying to gain that freedom, they did uh, sacrifice allyship with other women in name of getting that freedom of white maleness of the power of white maleness. So that's kind of interesting to me that we see that happen, you know, in the suffrage, like, but then in the 27, but then that's in 21, but then in 27, she's still getting institutionalized for three generations of, so that didn't even work. So, ah, so that's even, she's <laughs> even proves it that even that, so they were still getting, so do you think I'm like a nightmare anti-feminist for saying that or like, do, or what am I trying to say?
1: Well, here's what I will tell you because I am, you know, I consider myself a hardcore feminist but, you know, many of the women that I study, many of the white women that I study um, were suffragists, but they were also, like, basically very racist and also eugenicists. Um, so we have to, you know, history is very complicated. Um, we want to sort of make heroes of many of these white women who were fighting for suffrage because, you know, suffrage is a great cause. But we have to also understand that many of these same women were behind some of the most insidious racist um, campaigns in, um, in U.S. history. So
0: basically Buck v. Bell happens in 1927. Mm-hmm. And after that, they're saying like, okay, forced sterilization, it's a thing. It's to spare the public good. Who was notably subjected to those practices? And, and actually just because the government said that it was okay in 1927, that didn't mean that it wasn't happening before that. It was probably happening a lot before that anyhow.
1: You're absolutely right. Um, there are several states that passed uh, sterilization laws uh, prior to Buck v. Bell, um, and then there are several that passed them after Buck v. Bell. Um, and even states who don't pass a sterilization law doesn't mean that it wasn't happening. Uh, the weird thing about history is that the states who did pass it, we have these ginormous paper trails, right? Because it was a whole institutional process. But we do know that, for example, Colorado, which is a state that didn't have a sterilization law, they did it anyway. It's harder to document because they didn't have the paper trail. Um, But the people in the very beginning, um, the people who are being sterilized are largely poor white women. But as we move forward, this becomes a lot more racialized.
0: There was some TV show I think I was watching where this one woman who I think was formerly enslaved or she was like a first generation like, survivor from being like firmly enslaved. She goes to this town of what seems like all these, like, really, like, you know, well to do, like, other black people. And she's like, Oh my God, yeah, I finally found a bank that I can, like, work at. And it's like, I'll chill. But then the guy's like, Oh, but you have to take this pill. Cause we, and she's like, But I don't want to not have babies. He's like, Oh no, it's actually for your own good. But it was like this story about like forced sterilizations and of black women in like South Carolina or North Carolina. I think it was like in the 1800s. So do we see like prior to Buck V. Bell in the 20s and like the earlier, like, one of like the white women, like, weren't they? doing like forced sterilization of like certain black people like and people who were enslaved like like even earlier like in the 1800s
1: so i well i would say that during slavery it was in the best interest of enslavers to actually have women uh, that they enslaved to have a lot of babies because right. that was property so that wasn't really a thing at the time but once we get these sterilization laws In the very beginning, there's this concern about over-institutionalization. And so sterilizing people was a way in which to sort of curb that problem. Um, And at first, there's a lot of focus on like the wrong kinds of white women um, who are, um, you know, having too many babies. But it very quickly does become racialized. Places like California, you have both men and women being sterilized, and but it's mainly uh, Mexican men and women who are being sterilized. Um, In the South, once they start passing their sterilization laws, it becomes black women. And as we move through the 20th century, these, even though eugenics sort of gets debunked, even though I would argue it's still there, we are starting to sterilize women of color at alarming rates. Um, and this really doesn't come into light until the 1970s, where we have a bunch of court cases. And I really think that's important to pause and realize that women were being sterilized against their will, women of color, as late as the 1970s.
0: How did that happen?
1: Well, one example would be in Los Angeles in the 1970s. There was a hospital where poor Mexican women would come in to give birth And when they were in labor, hospital officials, nurses and doctors would ask them to sign paperwork and they would say things um, like, you know, sometimes they would say sterilization, sometimes they wouldn't, but there was a uh, sometimes a translation barrier there, right, and understanding what that meant. Um, And so while they were in labor, they were asked to be to sign this paperwork, which was basically an authorization to be sterilized. So women would go in, give birth and then leave the hospital, not knowing that they were sterilized. And there was a court case called Madrigal uh, v. Quilligan, in which all of these women found out that they were sterilized against their will. They sued the hospital and they lost. So they you know, they lost because they signed the paperwork. But what that did was it created a bunch of new uh, fail-safe measures where women would have to have like a a 24-hour waiting period if they agreed to be sterilized so that they could come home and think about it. Now, this is really important because this created, in the 1970s, a clash between white feminists and women of color feminists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because white feminists were basically arguing reproductive choice. I should be able to have an abortion when I want. I should be able to get sterilized when I want. I should be able to get sterilized on demand. I shouldn't have to wait. I shouldn't have to ask anybody if if it's my body. If I want it, I should get it now. But women of color were like, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, these sterilization on demand laws are dangerous for us because of incidences like this Los Angeles hospital. If we really want to be inclusive of our feminism, we have to think about reproductive justice, not reproductive rights, and giving all women the broad spectrum of rights, whether that is to not have children or to have more children. Um, So I think that's just a really important point to, to, to point out.
0: So how did they mend that issue in the 70s?
1: Well, we now have, I mean, it's still, I think it's still a little bit of a point of contention, but we do now have um, in several states laws like waiting periods where you have to just wait, you know, a few days. If you, can, to be, you can't just walk in and get, you know, sterilized. I mean, these are fail-safes because of these instances of injustice that happened with women of color. So...
0: In the 20s, and as these laws get passed, and in California, it's, like, predominantly affecting, like, people of, like, Latinx descent. In the South, it's, like, Black Americans. How does, like, nativism and racism underline that?
1: Well, I mean, to me, when you ask that question, I can't help but think about the recent shooting in Buffalo, right? Um, The mass shooting that we just had where the guy wrote this manifesto um, talking about the Great Replacement Theory. And, you know, this idea that people of color are going to start, and especially immigrants, are going to start outnumbering white Protestants. And, I mean, it's so disturbing and chilling, but really this is a history that goes way back. This, This idea, this fear that you know, immigrants and people of color were going to start outnumbering white Protestants in the United States is basically why all of these eugenics policies were passed. It's why we had these forced sterilization policies. Um, you know, and I think to me as a historian of medicine, it's really important to interrogate the ways in which we have perpetuated medical violence against marginalized communities in this way. Uh, I don't really think that you can study the history of medicine without interrogating those issues.
0: So how does like the Protestant morality come into play with like the just kind of public ideas of, you know, what was acceptable and what was unacceptable in America in the like late 1800s, early 1900s?
1: Well, I think this gets back to this idea of this category that we sort of invented um, under the umbrella of eugenics of feeble-mindedness.
0: So, like, a queer person will be feeble-minded because yes. you, like, wanted to suck dick. And, you know, everybody maybe wants to suck dick, but you just can't go sucking <laughs> dick. You know, or you can't just go, like, <laughs> fucking lots of people. Yeah. Uh, could, spending too much could make you feeble-minded. Couldn't being overweight make you feeble-minded because you couldn't, like, control yourself with food or something? Like, isn't it anything...
1: It's pretty much a catch-all diagnosis for anything that doesn't align with Protestant morality. And it's this idea that someone who is feeble-minded, you might not know by looking at them, but you could probably tell by their behavior. And it's because there was this idea that they were frozen in their development um, at, you know, maybe like a 14 or 15-year-old phase, you know, and that they didn't have good judgment. And so for, you know, straight women, if they were um, sexually promiscuous, then there was something wrong with them and they were feeble-minded. If you were a man and you had sex with another man, there's something wrong with you and you are feeble-minded. So it really was a way in which to take these ideas of Protestant morality and pathologize them and, and then either be institutionalized um, and maybe even be sterilized. So in your work,
0: you've written about the link between the medical profession and the 1920s Klan. Very interesting. And specifically their obsession with reproductive surveillance, uh, quote, reproductive surveillance. Sounds like something they openly talked about. What were the Klan's broader aims and beliefs at this time?
1: Yeah. So for... For, for people who might not be familiar, you know, we basically sort of see different waves of Klan activity, right? The first Klan happens in the uh, Reconstruction era. My work focuses on the second Klan, which comes about in starting in 1915 and throughout the 1920s.
0: Dr. Eisenhower Ramirez, rest in peace. He was, like, incredible, like, was an expert in, like, Civil War history because we interviewed him about, like, what happened to all the racist fucks from the Confederacy. And one thing that I didn't realize about history is that, like, Abraham Lincoln is killed four days after the North, like, you know, wins. And so he doesn't really live to see reconstruction. And then his vice president is like this racist Southerner who was like the only Senator who didn't secede in the union, which is like why he became vice president. Cause like Lincoln thought that he could like bridge them. But then he basically says like, fuck your reconstruction, fuck your mule, fuck your acres. Like we're not making good on Dick, like get fucked. Like you are, you know, you got your freedom and lucky for you, and we're going to pass all these like Jim Crow laws now. So isn't that kind of what happened? Like from 1865 to like 1875 was like kind of okay, but then it gets like really fucked up. Or is it basically never okay? It's like kind of never okay, well,
1: right? It's kind of like never okay, but your summary is very good. I mean, essentially what happens is during the Reconstruction era and, you know, it's in this era where it's kind of good, right? Where we're actually the South is electing, you know, uh, black men to Congress, you know, and we're, and the Freedmen's Bureau is in there. White. Confederates or ex-Confederates are really pissed off about this. And this is when we get the formation of the original Klan. And what they're doing is doing this extra-legal justice idea where they're going in and they're killing and they're raping and they're doing all sorts of this violence um, against uh, Black Southerners. Um, and then when Reconstruction ends, which, you know, is a whole deal in itself, it shouldn't have ended, um, but when the, the federal government pulls out of the South, um then there was really and we get all of these Jim Crow laws then there really wasn't a need for the Klan right because things went back to the way that they wanted it to be and they had police power right again um and so the Klan sort of dies down after that um but then in the 19, in 1915 it it gets revived and it's the second clan is a lot different than the first clan. The first clan is just in the south. It's just Democrats, um, and their campaign is just against black people. The second clan is all over the United States. The largest chapter is in Indiana. Uh, the second largest chapter is in Denver. It's both men and women. It's Democrats and Republicans. So it is. A much larger movement than the first. They're not just anti-black. They're also anti-Jewish, anti-immigrant, um, anti-Catholic. They run on this idea of a hundred percent Americanism. Um, basically what I like to say is, um, they, they're really the trying French to, MAGA. I was just going to say that they were trying to make America great again. Um, unfortunately, any famous
0: fuckers in that group? Is there anyone who was like, like anyone who we would like recognize from that 1915
1: group? I will say that there was a film called Birth of a Nation that came out in 1915, which inspired the revival of the Klan. Um, and this silent film has, it's all about the Klan and it paints them as these uh, Southern white saviors. And uh, President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, hosts a viewing of Birth of a Nation at the White House. So, yeah.
0: So so Woodrow Wilson's like racist. yes. So basically, like 1915, everybody's racist. Biggest Klan chapters in Indiana, right next door to where I'm from. So yeah. everybody's super fucking racist. And then what happens with, like, the reproductive surveillance?
1: Right, so my work actually looks at the ways in which the Klan used medicine to kind of legitimize themselves, but then also to spread the idea of eugenics. So the client was really obsessed with this, this concept that I call reproductive surveillance. They wanted to really be able to police who was breeding and who wasn't breeding. Uh, one great example that I will give is that the head of the Denver clan was a doctor named John Galen Locke. And he went around, um, you know, whipping people, um, if they did things that they weren't supposed to do. Um, one particular incident, he has his henchmen go in and break into a hotel room and kidnap this fellow clan member because he got a girl pregnant. His henchmen bring this little this high school kid um, to his medical office. And Galen comes out with his scalpel and he says, I'm going to give you a vasectomy right here and now, unless you marry this woman that you got pregnant. And um, so he starts crying and he says, OK, of course I will. And so then they bring in the woman, they bring in a preacher and then they marry them right then and there. And so that's an example of the ways in which he was trying to enforce this idea of clan ideas of Protestant morality. So they were really into policing not only, you know, people of color and keeping them from reproducing, but also making sure that white Protestants were reproducing. They took eugenic ideas and they argued that one of the this is really horrible and I, I don't even like saying it, but they said one of the ways that we could maybe think about um, using eugenics and using medicine is that whenever a black man is accused of rape, we should put them on trial um, with doctors and doctors should be the jurors. And if we find that they are guilty, then the doctors will give them a vasectomy um, or castrate them um, is, is the way they actually put it. It's just really horrible stuff, but it's really important to realize the ways in which the clan really weaponized ideas of medicine and reproduction to drive home their agendas.
0: So, like, basically, whether or not you know, someone had done it or not, like, one of the first fixes was, like, taking away bodily autonomy and doing forced castrations or, like, forced um sterilizations of women or, like, forced castrations of men. Yes. So, and the way that the Klan implemented that, how did they implement this whole thing against... I mean, I, I hear how they did it with, like, their own members and how did they... And I guess through trials of, like, if anyone was accused of rape or...
1: Well, this that was their ideas, right? So they had all of these ideas that they were writing about and that they were wanting to do. They were thankfully less successful in actually implementing these ideas, but they had big plans. Colorado, for example, and this is what they wanted to do. They basically wanted to take over government, like state government, and they wanted to kick out like members of uh, public health boards, and um, anything that had to do with medicine and replace them with Klan members. And so Colorado is a great example of this because in the early 1920s elections, Klan members basically take over the state government. They are elected by the people. You know, the governor is a Klan member. The police chief is a Klan member. Almost all of the state representatives are Klan members. The mayor of Denver is a Klan member. They basically take over the government. And their idea is that, okay, well, now we're going to go to all of these public health boards and these different medical organizations, and we're going to kick out anybody who doesn't like who isn't down with us. And then we're going to replace them with Klan members, and then we can implement this widespread reproductive surveillance. Um, So that's their plan. It doesn't come into fruition because they're voted out of office in the next election. Um, Thank God. so th- their actual implementation um, didn't really happen, but they had big plans, um, which is scary enough, I think.
0: What were the Klan's thoughts on like, abortion and birth control by choice? Uh,
1: that is a super big and complicated question. The abortion part, I haven't found any evidence of any Klan members or uh, women, even women. There were a lot of women physicians who were in the Klan, um, white women physicians, and by and large, all of them were against abortion. Um, and in fact, they uh, tarred and feathered a couple of uh, abortion doctors, the male clan members did. Um, but the birth control uh, question is a little bit trickier. There were many women in the Klan who were anti-birth control, mainly because they didn't want white women Getting their hands on birth control. They didn't want white women aborting babies. They didn't want white women having birth control. They wanted white women to have all the babies. Um, And then their answer to, you know, people of color would be to sterilize them, right? But not all Klan members were against birth control. And in fact, there were a few women physicians who were members of the Klan and part of Margaret Sanger's committee of a thousand who were campaigning for legalized birth control. Margaret Sanger herself, who's a very complicated figure, met with a group of Klan women to talk about the benefits of birth control. She did say it was the scariest experience of her life, but, you know, Sanger was really a a one-issue woman. She wanted to meet with as many groups as possible to tell them about the wonders of birth control. So she met with Klan women she met with eugenesis? I think New York's Planned Parenthood, um, they took down Margaret Sanger's name off of their, you know, their marquee. And I think that's the right decision. We can sort of understand the passion that Margaret Sanger had for birth control, but I don't think that we can actually excuse her meeting with Klan members and eugenicists. One of the other ways in which The clan women were really instrumental was fostering this idea of Protestant moralism. Um, they would do things like, there was one particular incidence where they would, they were trying to save Protestant babies from Catholic orphanages. So they would adopt Protestant babies out of Catholic orphanages and raise them as Protestants. Say so they were doing a lot of this sort of domestic stuff mm. um, to forward their agenda. So they weren't necessarily violent, um, the ways in which the male clan was, but they really wielded soft power. Although I will say one of the main women clan members who lectured around the country argued that um, people who engage in interracial marriage are guilty of race suicide and therefore should be subjected to the death penalty. So, Yeah.
0: One thing that I wrote down earlier in my notes is that like, ultimately, you know, sterilization is tantamount to genocide. If you're, you're, and you're literally like trying to erase either eventually, you know, near future, an entire group of people based off of your beliefs. And that's something that we, You know, I don't think that we've ever taken responsibility for in the United States, or really understand that that's part of our history. Recently, I've been having some stomach problems. Everyone that I talked to recommended that I take a bunch of different supplements and vitamins, but it's kind of complicated to keep track of that many different pills and powders every day. So I decided to give AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution that supports my gut health while also supporting my immune and brain health. AG1 covers my bases with high quality ingredients like pre and probiotics, adaptogens, antioxidants, and whole food sourced nutrients. AG1 also replaces my multivitamin, my pre-probiotic, and my supplements to support energy and focus. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com curious. That's drinkag1.com curious. Check it out. My makeup routine changes every day. Sometimes I'm giving you full glam, but sometimes I like a no-makeup makeup makeup look or like literally just like almost literally no makeup. It just depends. Whether you like fresh-faced, full glam, or somewhere in between, there's a Thrive Cosmetics product for you. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. They're made with clean, skin-loving ingredients. They are high-performance, and they have uncompromising standards. One of my personal favorite products is the Brilliant Eye Brightener. I love this product because it can be used in so many different ways. It can be a highlighter stick that's made to brighten and open up your eyes. They support amazing causes, including the LGBTQIA community and racial and social justice. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com. Curious. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 20% off your first order. We talked on the show recently uh, about the ways that like the BMI is, you know, based off of like unreliable metrics. And... Who, like, made those metrics, which was, like, a lot of, like, white male doctors who, like, didn't really pool, like, a diverse amount of people to, like, come up with these things that we, like, still use as Bible now. So, who has historically practiced medicine in the U.S.?
1: The short answer to that, obviously, is white men, right? So. But you had said,
0: like, some female physicians. So, when did, like, women get the right to, like, be able to do, to be a physician?
1: So, women, so, the very first woman physician was a woman named Elizabeth Blackwell. Um, and she earned her medical degree in 1849. So prior to that, prior to 1849, only men were allowed to earn medical degrees. And even Blackwell, when she, um, you know, decided that she wanted to be a physician, you know, she applied to a bunch of different schools, didn't get in. Uh, finally, there was this college called Geneva Medical College in upstate New York. Um, she applied and the admissions people said, well... This is kind of funny, um, you know. What we're going to do? We're going to uh, let all of the students decide whether she can enroll. And all of the students sort of thought it was a big joke, right? So they all voted unanimously to allow her, as a joke, to be to to enroll in the medical college. Um, and then throughout the time when she was there, I mean, she was often ridiculed. Um, even the people in the in the local town made fun of her. She often um, would have to sit by herself in labs, Um, but she graduated at the top of her class and became, you know, the first woman. Um, And then following her, we get this whole generation of women physicians um, who follow in her footsteps. We get women's medical colleges that open up across the United States Um, and we get like a lot of women physicians until around 1920, that's sort of when the year peaks and then it dives down. And then those numbers don't recover until beginning in the 1970s. Um, and actually in just the past few years, women have outnumbered men in admissions to medical colleges. Um, so we do get that big you know, push of women physicians in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, And interestingly enough, when they become physicians, a lot of men and male physicians didn't really take them seriously. They accused them of being glorified midwives um, and glorified midwives who were often the people who, who performed abortions. So women physicians, because they wanted to gain legitimacy within the field, and wanted to distance themselves from midwives and say, we're nothing like these midwives. We have medical training. And they started to take a very strong anti-abortion stance. So a lot of this early anti-abortion activism that we get is actually from women physicians. Because they want to make sure that nobody is confusing them with a midwives who perform abortions. So...
0: When you became a doctor in like the 1850s, like you would go to medical school for like three, four years. And then who like granted that? Was there like a national like medical board or
1: something? That's a great question. So I think we automatically think in our modern day ideas of medicine being this super awesome, respected field, right? But prior to the 20th century Medicine in many ways was ridiculed. Um, it was not really taken that seriously unless you were like a super fancy doctor like Benjamin Rush, who was one of the founders. Um, and that's because training was all over the place. Um, often you would be an apprentice to an established physician, and that's how you would get your, you know, your your training. Um, sometimes you would go to school for just two years. You didn't necessarily need a high school diploma. Um, and it wasn't actually associated with universities. Many physicians who became doctors like day one never had any lab training and never even put their hands on a patient. Um, so it was really kind of all over the place um, until later when we get this thing called the Flexner Report, where there's this one guy who goes around to all the medical schools and sort of judges them on like how good they are. And then that results in everybody standardizing medical education to the way that we know it now. Um, but really, it was kind of just the Wild West. You could even get your diploma in the mail. You could go to a diploma mail.
0: So who like did not have access to becoming a physician?
1: So, you know, obviously we talked about women. Um, people of color, Black folks, were often excluded from... Um, medical schools. The AMA, the American Medical Association, also uh, barred Black doctors. And the Flexner Report, which I just talked about, also did a whole section on um, historically Black colleges that had medical schools. Flexner argued that all of these medical colleges that were at historically Black colleges, they needed to be shut down, all except for two. And he said that because obviously, in his mind, that we needed Black doctors to take care of Black patients And so he so those recommendations were followed and all black medical colleges were shut down except for the one at Howard and another one at Meary. And so even, you know, there's this longer history of black folks fighting to get into, you know, get through the door. So
0: when were black women allowed to become physicians? Was that not till the 60s? So,
1: yeah, that's a great question. There were some colleges. Uh, So, one example that I can think of is the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Um, That college actually allowed Black women to enroll. So, what you find is a lot of Black women becoming physicians either at these historically Black medical colleges or at some of these smaller women's medical colleges that actually did allow Black women to become physicians. The very first Black woman physician was a woman named Rebecca Lee Crumpler, um, and in the 18, she graduated in 1860 from New England's Female Medical College. So again, at these small women's medical colleges that also largely disappeared after the Flexner Report.
0: And when's the Flexner Report come out again?
1: It's like the early 1900s.
0: So then our guest Sabrina Strings has used art history to explore racialized fat phobia. And you've used film to understand the history of women in medicine. How have women physicians been depicted on screen over time?
1: I love this question because, um, because my research largely focuses on women physicians in the American West. I've always been really fascinated with how... Western women physicians sort of appear in film and television. Obviously, when you think about the Western woman physician who in film and TV, who do you think of?
0: Me- you- Jane Seymour.
1: Yes, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, yeah. right? So, like, when I was starting my research back when I was a graduate student doing my dissertation, every time I would tell people that I was writing about basically white women physicians in the American West, um, people would always say, oh, you must have come up with that idea because you you watched Dr. Quinn. I had never seen it. Um, but I decided to, you know, go ahead and start watching it. Um, have you seen any of them?
0: Um, some, yeah. not intensely, because I was like, I'd rather watch Golden Girls instead when I was yeah. little.
1: Good choice. Good choice. Um, yeah. So, you know, as I was doing my research, though, I kept coming across different examples of Western women physicians, um, in TV and film. And I was really fascinated by some of the, the change over time that you see the ways in which these women are depicted and how that change over time reflects these larger ideas about gender, um, at the time. And so what I really found was, so like, Feminist writers, like in the early 20th century, like Charlotte Perkins Gilman and all of these people, they were really obsessed with women physicians in the American West because they were like these professional women who could vote. Right. Because in the American West, you could vote earlier than the 19th Amendment. So like Colorado, for example, women got the vote in 1893.
0: So that was before New Zealand.
1: Yeah. Very early. So. Like, feminist writers at the time were obsessed with this. They were like, look at these women physicians. They're out there practicing medicine. They're voting. They're running for political office. They're amazing, right? So they really wrote about these women as, like, the potential of women. Like, look at these women. They are the feminist potential. Now, on the flip side of this, silent film... Um, Writers, screenwriters, were also obsessed with women physicians in the West, but in a very different way. There's tons of films about women physicians in the West, but they depict them as comedic devices that, in a way, they threaten the sexual order. So usually, like, the the premise of these films is, like, there's this tiny Western town in the middle of nowhere, tumbleweeds, you know, everything— and they're all men. And then this woman physician comes in, she moves to the West, she sets out her shingle, and it just causes complete sexual chaos in the town. And all the men want to come and see her because they just want to be touched by a woman. And so there's all of these different variations where the woman physician represents sexual chaos. One particular film, which is horrific in a way, it's supposed to be a comedy, but from our modern senses, abilities is, is terrible. There's a male physician who gets threatened by this woman physician because all the men want to go and see her. Um, but then he decides that he's going to dress up like a woman and be a woman doctor so he can get his patients back. And so he dresses up like a woman. All of his patients start coming back. But then they figure out that he's a man and they decide that they're going to lynch him. And so they start, you know, getting the rope and everything. And then the woman physician comes by and makes all of the men stop and tell them that they are wrong. And the two physicians fall in love and they get married. That's, that's the end of that story. It's a little
0: better than (laughs) the ending I thought was going to happen, to be honest. Wait, so, but then how does it end? Do they be, so then by the 80s, they're like respected and like ass kickers who are like awesome and fearless?
1: Yeah, yeah. So like you get all of these silent films where they're like, Comedies, you know, sex comedies, all of these things. But then after World War II, when we get the rise of the TV Western, women physicians are still there, but they're sort of in the background. They're not the main characters. There's a helpmate to the, to the white male, you know, uh, hero, white like hat. Like a more right?
0: real doctor or whatever. Exactly. Or the, or,
1: yeah. Exactly. And they, and, but they usually also fall in love with the main character. That sort of never goes away. Um, but in the 1980s, when women's history starts to become a thing, right? We start getting, Historians who are actually looking at women's history, we get a whole generation of scholarship of women who are like looking at the history of women physicians. And that one, and you also get all of these biographies of women physicians coming out, um, including a woman named Susan Anderson, who is a woman physician who moved west. And she becomes one of the inspirations for Dr. Quinn. In the 90s, by the time we get to Dr. Quinn, Dr. Quinn, in my mind, is really the epitome of what these early 20th century feminists wanted and were writing about. She becomes like this white savior, you know, civilizing the West um, in a very problematic way, in my opinion, Um, but in a very sort of multicultural way, right, where you have, you know, she's sort of moralizing from a sort of second wave uh, feminist perspective, um, you know, Where there's a moral to the end of every story.
0: So do we ever see like the clan's involvement in medicine on screen?
1: Well, actually, speaking of Dr. Quinn, um, there's the one episode that I actually uh, write about because I, I hate it where, um, the clan comes to town, um, to Dr. Quinn's town and, um, everybody starts joining the clan and they, they want to run out the, you know, the town's few, uh, black residents. And Dr. Quinn is the one who comes in and does all of this moralizing where she says, you all are wrong and the Klan is bad and you should be ashamed of yourselves. Um, And the reason why I take issue with this is because a lot of the women physicians in the American West were actually Klan members. So it paints this sort of white savior trope.
0: And she would have been run the fuck out of town. Like, if her, if her character would really have done that in the late 1800s, like, if that had really happened, like, they would have run her out of town, too. For like, And she would have been declared, like, feeble-minded and, like, institutionalized for <laughs> trying to, like, stand up for the Black people, right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, history tells us that Dr. Quinn more than likely would have been a Klan member rather than fight the Klan. That would be historically more accurate. So,
0: so what other archives like kind of prominently feature women positions? If anyone, well, actually, because here's the thing, I I'm not even. Two thirds of the way through our interview. And this is definitely going to have to be a two parter. So like, that's kind of what I've learned about this. Um, but in the meantime, until we have our second installment, where can people find your scholarship and your work? And, and where, where do you think people really need to start to kind of understand how race, gender, class, privilege and the history of all of those things, uh, intersect to understand like the history of reproductive justice and autonomy, freedom in the United States? Like, where can people start until next time?
1: Yes, uh, great question. So, you know, I have a book that I'm working on with, uh, through Rutgers University Press that I'm so supposed to be submitting next, next May. So stay tuned for that. But I also have an, an article, um, called White Coats, White Hoods, The Medical Politics of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, through the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, which is, I think there is an open access version. Um, but more importantly than looking at my work, there is a whole important body of scholarship by Black women, um, Deidre Cooper-Owen's Medical Bondage that looks at uh, the ways in which Black enslaved women were um, experimented on by white physicians. Uh, Dorothy Roberts' book, Killing the Black Body. There's so much great scholarship out there that people can look for. And I, to me, that's the key to moving forward. We have to stop whitewashing the history of medicine um, as this sort of great arc of progress and really look at the ways in which medicine has contributed to... Um, you know, medical violence against marginalized communities. That's the only way I think that we can move forward.
0: Oh, Professor Jackie Antonovich, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We are going to have you back again very shortly. I'm so proud of you. It's like a weird thing to say at the end, but I am just so proud of you and your work and your scholarship. And thank you so much for talking to us. We appreciate you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun.
0: Y'all, thank you for listening to that conversation. Thank you for supporting our work on Getting Curious. We are doing a little special uh, highlight reel um, next week, which is going to have some like gorgeous new commentary for me. So I'll be back to talk with you from uh, one more time live in 2023. But I love y'all. Wish my butt luck and uh, fast healing. And I love you so much. And I'll I'll see you next time on Getting Curious. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. And honey, there's more where that came from. You can follow us on Instagram at Curious with JVN. We are doing the most over there and it is so much fun. You can catch us here every Wednesday. And also make sure to tune in every Monday for alternating episodes of Curious Now and Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough? Subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JBN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Chris McClure, Julia Melfi, and Alison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall.